Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Unplugged Soul, a conference about podcasting. We have a remarkable lineup starting today with the two people responsible, if I'm correct, for the first ever podcast feed. Yeah, I think that would be fair. And I suppose with that series of thoughtful and formatless dialogues came the Big Bang of podcasting. In fact, you could say they were the Big Bang. And like the elementary particles from that first energetic burst, our speakers today are still on the frontiers, expanding possibilities, and thinking deeply about the uses and abuses of podcasting. So from the beginning, the stakes were high, as now the first podcasters were living in a time of great uncertainty, with some trusted journalistic institutions having allowed the truth of things to be perverted. And so they embarked on what they called a democratic experiment. I think you said that in the opening moments of that podcast, Chris. Yeah. Bearing remarkable fruits to this day, such as the extraordinary run of stimulating and revelatory conversations on open source since the election. Now these two are so distinguished I could spend the whole time enumerating their achievements. For now I'll concentrate on their shared qualities of boundless energy in the cause of furthering understanding and their unshakable belief in people of good faith here and the world over. So will you welcome please Dave Weiner and Christopher Lydon. I'll start, we'll go back and forth. We're going to improv until you drop, or we drop. <laughs> um, I, I just, I tell radio people this on, on our program, don't forget to say the main thing. And the main thing is, for me, uh, the pleasure, the privilege, the all-round happiness, something like joy of podcasting. It's, it's a phenomenal medium to hear, to imagine that the sound of your own voice is going instantly around the world for free, talking with the most wonderful people you can imagine is, um, I mean, for a journalist, for people, it's kind of heaven. It, so don't let me forget to underline that. Um, uh, this is a rare occasion. Dave and I are not seen publicly together and that often, and whenever it happens, so, something like, happens. It's like 13 years, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, so give 12 it, years, whatever. Uh, do you want to say hello, Dave, and then I want to... No, you talk for a while. Okay. Well, the thought was um, the, the history of podcasting, but also the history of us and of me. Where, where, where are we coming from? And I'll try to be very, very quick about this. Uh, I'm coming from a big Boston Irish Catholic family Grew up in the 50s, 40s and 50s. Uh, always interested in public life, politics. We were poor as church mice. I mean, really poor, but we were gifted and we worked hard in school. Had a hard classical education at the Roxbury Latin School. Then Yale. Uh, I was at Yale through the Kennedy administration. It was a wonderful time in so many ways. It was scary, including the missile crisis. Um, but it was, it was lively. Journalistically, I mean, I come out of, uh, shall we say, first-class elite, dare I say, institutions. I read the New York Times daily from the eighth grade on, and then switched actually to the Herald Tribune when I got to Yale. It was the the Herald Tribune of Walter Lippmann, uh, Red Smith, Jimmy Breslin, who was the superstar emerging at the time. But these were. I got into journalism at a wonderful time, really the last gasp of terrific 
newspaper journalism, went to work for the Globe in Boston during summers at Yale, and then uh, full-time covering mayor's races in the State House in the 60s, and then off to the New York Times, uh, thanks to Richard Reeves. Richard always used to say, you know, everybody at the Times has a rabbi, and he was mine. Neither of us happened to be Jewish, but anyway, he was my introducer and my protector when it started, although I was immediately assigned to the Washington Bureau of James Reston, Russell Baker, Tony Lewis, uh, uh, Tom Wicker, a marvelous cast of uh, superb reporters. It was right the time when Gay Talese was publishing his uh, Kingdom and the Power, and Arthur Crock, in fact, was still wandering the Bureau in Washington. William Shannon, nothing but superb professionals. Eileen Shanahan, um, but in any event, um, I, I went to, to back to Boston to do television um, at the uh, in the late 70s and did it too long. I, I have a face made for radio and I never loved television. My parents, in fact, had never allowed television in the house when we were growing up. And uh, I had a sort of counter television instinct. But stumbled backward into radio um, and Mary McGrath, who's here, and I started an incredibly fun program called The Connection which we still get comments on. People like our program today, but they say, you know, the connection was really something. Uh, an enormous success for the station, for everybody, except we fell into a terrible, terrible fight over who owned our work, our minds, our thinking. And even for wanting a piece of the equity, um, we were fired from WBUR. And um, it was a real injury and a real loss. Happily, the people who fired us very quickly got fired because we were their great, we were their great jewel, us and uh, car talk. But in any event, uh, I took refuge in th at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, thanks to Charlie Nesson, who is definitely a, an angel for both Dave and me. But this is the point at which, you know, 2002, uh, I, I sort of my personal history and the public history of all this comes together, and I met Dave. They told me Dave was coming. He was already a legend as a blogger. Um, but when he arrived, oh, just before he arrived, I, I remember sending him an email saying, yesterday I couldn't spell blog. Tomorrow I want to be one. And he said, I'll see you on Monday. Uh, and That's not how I remember it. <laughs> really? I think I sent you an email. I remember this very clearly. Well, go ahead. You finish your story. <laughs> well, I, 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 you, you might have sent the first one. But uh, I was sitting, okay, well, maybe now's a good time for me to do it. get myself to Berkman Center. Where are you coming from, Dave? Well, I came from Silicon Valley, where I had been a tech entrepreneur. Um, I had arrived there in 79, um, wanting to make my fame and fortune. The way I... I need to get this up closer, okay. I looked at Silicon Valley, I even said this at the time, I, it, to me, Silicon Valley is like... Memphis would be to a country musician. This is the place you want to go, and um, and I had Memphis, not Nashville, or Nashville, okay. either one. I think Memphis is pretty well, whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and I I had almost instantaneous success when I got to Silicon Valley. It was a very welcoming place. The time I got there in '79, it was uh, like nerd heaven or hippie heaven. I was also uh, I felt like a hippie and. Uh, uh, but things changed over the years. I started a tech company there, and uh, we were we were successful. It took a long time to get to success, 
And uh, then I started a second company that was not quite as, as smooth as the first one. And then in 2002, I decided I needed to get out of there. And I was looking for a way to make an exit. And then somebody told me that these guys at Harvard were, wanted to set up blogs. And uh, they wanted to use blogging as a way to connect the different parts of the campus together. And so I flew out to uh, Cambridge and I basically parked myself on the doorstep of Berkman and I insisted on that they hire me. Um, and I saw the guardian angel there as being John Palfrey more than, wow. than Charlie. Charlie was kind of a tough sell, but I think Palfrey, uh, well, he decided to take the risk. And I think of Palfrey as being my rabbi there. I think he kept me out of trouble. I was creating trouble all the time, and I don't know how not to do that. Um, and I think, but for good cause, because Harvard was going through a lot of changes at the time because of the internet. Um, yeah. This was a time when uh, Napster was ro rolling through all the college campuses, and uh, the music industry was making all kinds of demands on uh, the, the college, and the college didn't know what to do with it. They, they were kind of going, siding with the music industry, and so Berkman was a good place to be uh, for that. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but uh, so we, we helped the, the college uh, sort of deal with that. And that was why well, Berkman's part of the law school, or it was at least at the time. But I remember I was sitting there in one of the community rooms at Berkman, and I saw a little flyer up there with your face on it. Hmm. Yeah, it said Christopher Lydon. And I immediately thought, well, I know him. I mean, probably because of the connection. And uh, I said, this guy would be great for this project that I want to do. Um, and the project didn't have a name. It was We were thinking of it as audio blogging. We were already doing blogging. Um, and uh, But I always thought that blogging should, there should be an audio. There should be a way to do, and I'm going to say podcast, but there was no word for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think I emailed you, <laughs> hmm. and I said, Chris, why don't we like do this project? And I don't remember our first meeting. I don't remember what hmm. that was like. But, um, but I know that I had made the proposal to a number of people before that. And I think the thing that distinguishes you, Chris, is that you said yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and I you mean, I wasn't your first choice, Dave. Well, you come were, on, you were definitely my first choice after all the other choice. No, you were my first choice. I didn't want to make it sound that way. It wasn't like that at all. Um, I, what I remember, so many people. You make. I do this all the time. I'm always making propositions to people. Let's do this. Why don't we do? I'm like the guy in um, that movie, Wes Anderson movie, uh, Rushmore. You ever, ever see that sure. movie? He's always got these plays or projects of these various different things that he wants. He started a zoo. or That's me. I'm always trying to do one of those things. I always need somebody to do it with. And at that particular point in time, I was looking for somebody. I was looking for you. I mean, I didn't know it. I wouldn't have said this is the spec. But I need somebody who's comfortable with audio, not necessarily somebody who's a blogger, yeah. somebody who thinks in terms of radio. And... You know, I used to joke about when we would go to dinner or one of our, we used to take trips up to, uh, uh, up to New Hampshire because the New Hampshire primary was going on right then at this time. And that going to dinner or riding in the car with Chris is like riding with NPR uh -huh. <laughs> because Chris only has this one mode. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And anyway, um, so I remember sort of 
somehow we got connected. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I just say, yeah. pick it up, that uh, I do remember you saying, plain as could be, you know radio, I know syndication. What the world needs is an MP3 that can be circulated you know, on the web, and let's work on it. Yep. And, so, and so we did. But there's another piece of the, the historical context I think is extremely important the way I see all this. This was uh, 2002 into no, the winter. No, well, I didn't get there until 2003. So yeah, yeah, okay, but it, yeah. it, it was coming into the spring semester 2003, which was okay. the run-up to uh, the war in Iraq. And um, it was a miserable, bloody time. It was really bad, bad, bad time. It, something like, you know, picking up the paper and seeing that Donald Trump has dropped, you know, the mother of all bombs yeah. on on people who don't know what hit them. But in any event, the worst of it was, and it was very unlike today. Nobody was talking about saying no to this ridiculous neo-imperial bullshit war with Iraq. I mean, it was just. Everybody was on board, um, including the New Yorker and the Washington Post. And of course, the New York Times was gung-ho for that war. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a time when it was, crazy. Uh, it was bad. But I, I had a strong feeling that um, you know, the lights had gone out in, uh, in the adult quarters of the world. And um, I, I felt it strongly at the election of George Bush, and even more strongly today, that he was our first selected president, not elected president. And he should have been asterisked in the same, every reference, the same way Roger Maris was as the home run hitter. It was, he was not playing on the same schedule as Babe Ruth. And George Bush was not elected with the same authority of popular choice uh, as any other president we've ever had. So but why anyway. was it? Why do you think that happened? Why were people so gung-ho for that? Well, it probably was just that people were so freaked out about 9-11. I think they were freaked out by 9-11. Yeah. The New York as the cultural and, and media center of the world was so shaken and shocked. And I don't forgive it, really, because it, was, it should have appealed to the worldliness and the experience totally. and the toughness of New York, and it appealed to exactly the opposite. Uh, um, uh, so, but it, it, I was feeling, will somebody speak up? And nobody was doing it. And then along came the internet. People were blogging about it. Our wonderful colleague Jim Moore wrote a piece that went viral it did. What was at that the called? time. It was called The Second Superpower Rears right. Its Beautiful Head um, about the world waking up online. And, um, but there was, you know, Sapphire and uh, every day or every, you know, three times a week and, and uh, Tom Friedman and David Brooks and lots and lots of others just, and, and the war bloggers, Andrew Sullivan, I don't forgive Andrew Sullivan uh, and lots of others. Who was that guy in the South from the South? Oh, God. That oh. law professor? Oh, he was terrible. You really want to talk about him? Glenn Reynolds, yeah. Right. Um, but and anyway. Like what do you like about Glenn Reynolds? <laughs> what do I? No, nothing. Well, we, but we invited him to BloggerCon. We were very, very nice to him. Yeah, he came. And then I went down to Nashville to a blogging conference there, and I was ambushed by Glenn Reynolds and all of his sort right. of thugs, you know, Rush yeah. Limbaugh, ditto heads. Not not a good guy, but yeah. you know, blogosphere had everybody in it, yeah. right? Well, but for me, I just it's a disclaimer, but also just to state, I I know nothing about the technology. Although Dave has been helpful, and we, I went to every one of his seminars at at the Berkman Center, and learned a lot, I suppose, indirectly. But I'm not, neither am I a business person. I, I I was not drawn at all to the sort of opportunity. Although I came to be very very grateful to be in on something new, but for me. The internet and blogging 
and then podcasting became a way of filling a, a really horrific vi uh, vacuum in uh, in the public conversation. And to me, it's it's a very it was a very political moment. It's a very political instrument, and it's uh, as in the sense of the way public business gets discussed and the openness of it. Um, but that, for me, was what launched it. And then Dave said, um, we had help from a wonderful guy named uh, Bob Doyle, who, who was an inventor and lived very simply, but he had his own income from, from Parker Brothers Toys. And um, uh, we, we kept working on this thing. And suddenly, Dave said, I think we got it. And I said, now what, Dave? What are we going to do? And he said, well, that's obvious. You're going to interview me, and we're going to put it out <laughs> to the world, which we did. And that, that conversation. Then, just, then he just repeated the same thing over and over. It got, he got into the groove that you were comfortable with and then did interviews. It went far, oh, sorry, it went far beyond just the Iraq situation. Because what Chris did, yeah. Chris went and did an exploration of the blogosphere. It, circa 2003-2004. And I remember listening to your podcast, and this is the best thing about podcasting, is that you get to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I learned about people like Coase and uh, um, who was it? The, uh, uh, the one who was doing Julia Child, uh, doing all of her recipes. No. You know, yeah, Julie, yeah. Julie, Julie something or other. Um, I mean, I don't know how you decided who to interview. It seemed very eclectic. Um, but it was fa a fascinating process, and it, it's something I don't think too many people in the podcast world have ever done since then. But I, Dave, I have you to thank for collecting them. They're all up right. there on a well, Harvard that's what site. The, that's what the technology was for. That's what we were learning how to do, was sort of how to create a flow uh, from, uh, from these things. There was a lot of other stuff going on that... that you weren't aware of <laughs> that were that was happening that ended up making this turn into much more than just I mean the thing can I can I go for a little bit just to tell the story okay so this was not the first try to get something going with podcasting the first thing well going all the way back to the very beginning um, I had a I was in New York at the end of 2000 and I was hanging out with a guy named Adam Curry in his hotel suite here in New York. And this is the other sort of creation story of podcasting. We have a new one now, which is, and it's very fair that we do have a new one, but there was one before this. <laughs> and, it, and it sort of overlaps, it sort of jumps over. So I, it wasn't originally, I have to say, it wasn't my idea. Um, Adam was insistent that it was possible to create a distribution system on the internet for big media objects, things like movies or audio or whatever. Back then, the internet was very slow, much, much slower than it is today. And what he, he had a hypothesis that said it wouldn't be slow if you didn't find out that this piece of music or this radio show or this TV show already was downloaded onto your computer if you didn't know about it until that had already happened. And I didn't get it at first. And he had to just repeat it like four or five times. He, f he showed me some of my own code that he had hacked up 
that was like total egregious hack. It was ridiculous. I, I, I remember how, how offended I was by this, but also impressed that he was willing to go to this extreme. This guy is not a programmer, okay? And, but he was so passionate about this idea that he had to do, go to this extreme to show. Then the light bulb went on. I said, wow, actually, this could work. So I went back to California, and in January of 2001, I created the software that produced these feeds and software that consumes them. So there's both sides of it. And, but I didn't have content. So what I did was I used the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead has this sort of philosophy that says, you know, if, they, if there were deadheads in the room, there would be 25 people doing what she's doing. And you wouldn't have had to sign a release because it would have been understood right from the start. This was the philosophy of podcasting right from the outset, is that what we're trying to do is distribute stuff all over the place. And so I put this Grateful Dead stuff out there, and I don't think anybody understood what the hell this was about. I mean, why would I want to get old? I mean, this was all... This was, Jerry was already gone. <laughs> and so this was old Grateful Dead stuff. So the idea wasn't really, I, I understood it, right? But other people didn't understand it. But I want to make sure that everybody understands that there was an existence of what we now call podcasting before then. And then after, uh, Chris called them seminars, but they weren't exactly seminars. Um, so when I arrived at Harvard, there was nothing. There was no community. There was no blogging in Cambridge at all. There was very little blogging in the world in general. And so I came there with a, a bigger goal than to just get the Harvard campus blogging. And by the way, getting a campus to blog, that was also a new idea. There was no blogging anywhere in the United States on campuses or, for that matter, anywhere else in the world. Harvard was the first campus that ever had blogging as a service for the students there. And so I'd set up a server. We're all set to go. There weren't any bloggers. So, um, so I said... Well, do we know why that... Well, it, it hadn't started yet. That's why. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to start a new activity, you know, some, when you start it, there isn't anything. And you have to create it. So, um, so what I did, I did two things. One is I called up the Crimson, and I said, I'd like to tell you about what I'm doing. Harvard has a great student newspaper. By the way, I should mention, at the very same time that we're doing this, over on the other side of campus, Mark Zuckerberg was starting Facebook. This was all happening totally concurrently. So I went to the undergrads, and I said, please you know, tell everybody the story about what we're doing. And so they did a fantastic job. That got some interest. And I also wrote about it on my blog, Scripting News, and that also got a fair amount. I mean, at that point, there weren't a whole lot of blogs. My blog was probably the biggest at that time. Today, not so much. And then every Thursday night in the main conference room at Berkman Center, and this was without exception, every Thursday night we had a meetup. And at that meetup, the first part of it would be tutorial. And so in that tutorial, first thing we do is we create blogs for everybody. So anybody that didn't have a blog that had come, you had to create a blog. Not that it was very difficult to do that, but this was a barrier for a lot of people. It was like, oh, why would I want to do that? Well, you just do it, don't worry about it, okay? And then a tutorial where we showed them the very most basic thing that you need to know how to do, which is how do you create a blog post? So everybody would learn how to create a blog post. Even if you had been there 
you know, 15 times. Didn't matter. You had to create a blog post right then and there. And Chris, I remember how many, it was fantastic to watch you. I mean, you say you don't like technology, but you were very tenacious and you stuck with it. And you were like the star pupil in a, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of your persistence. And Chris was there every week. Maybe. I was even there one time when you weren't there. Really? Well, okay. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, and so then the question was, okay, so we had all this going, and, and uh, what, what else we would do is then we would have a discussion. And what we would do is we would talk about what we were doing on our blogs. So in a way, this was sort of the bootstrap of a community of bloggers. And so it didn't matter, whatever it was, politics. And then the question was thrown up, well, what do we want to do? We've got, you know, some, day, some uh, Thursdays there were 30 people in the room. Others there were like, you know, five you know, people in the room. And, uh, and so as I mentioned before, this was the end of 2003. And Boston is very close to New Hampshire. And we had the New Hampshire primary. This was Howard Dean time. Right. And who else was running? Lieberman, John, Joe Lieberman, John. What's his name? North Carolina. Yeah. What the hell? What? John Edwards, right? Okay. Uh, yep. And so we would go on road trips. This whole group, we would go on road trips. Everybody had this idea that it, these politicians are so inaccessible. They're not. They are thirsty. They're anxious to have people come, and we would blog about it. And so, okay, so we had that down. What's the next thing we want to do? Let's have a conference. So here we are sitting at a university, and we had all these fantastic facilities. I mean, what is a university but a big conference center, right? And um, so, and this is where the rabbi, Paul Freak, comes in, and he was totally supportive. Remember, he took me on a tour around of all the facilities that Harvard had for conferences. He showed me this fantastic building that's like very old and, you know, huge. And I said, nah, that's not what we want. And he showed me a bunch of them. And then he showed me Pound Hall. And I said, okay, that's the place. And we had like four different sort of law school classrooms. And we had one that was set aside just for tutorials because we had evangelical zeal. Our whole thing was about we have to get people blogging. Now, there wasn't a requirement. This, these conferences were called BloggerCon, by the way. There was not a requirement that people had to blog, but we wanted you to blog. And so we would help people get their blogs started. Initially, we had a rule that you had to have a Harvard address uh, to create one, but we let that go. We basically let anybody create one. And we, Zuckerberg had the same idea at the same time. We yeah. did. It didn't have to be just a Harvard dating book. It could take over the well, world. Well, we could have been on Facebook. We might have even got some dates. But <laughs> we didn't know anything about this. We had no idea this was going on. This was complete. But it pissed me off a few years ago. I was at a... a uh, y Combinator startup school thing, and Zuckerberg's there on stage, and he's talking about how the old people on the Harvard campus had no clue about the internet when he was there. And I'm going, well, you know, I said something that is not repeatable, uh, but it's like, well, I'm not going to say it, but I was so angry. It's like, you know, uh, yes, we had a clue. We did something. It's too bad we never did meet because. I wonder why he didn't come to BloggerCon, or did he? No, he didn't. Uh, but all kinds of incredible people did come to BloggerCon. Yeah. So we did two of those at Harvard, and then we did one at Stanford, and then one at CNET. And by that time, blogging was up and running. And there's, a wonderful, also, there's a wonderful picture somewhere. Yeah, I just want to mention one more thing about BloggerCon. At each one of these, we had a session called audio blogging. 
And that's where the, te the tech people got together. And actually, it wasn't limited to tech people, but it tended to draw the tech people because I don't think that too many of the non-technical, Doc, you were there, right? Do you, I, I, I don't think that the non-technical people really understood what we were talking about with audio blogging. But that's where we worked out sort of the details on, you know, I don't know, just how are we going to do this? What's the software going to look like? But the, and, the, the critical shift as well is from the monologue to the dialogue. The blogging you're describing is people, you know, speaking out of the world about where they're Yeah, from. I don't think that came out of, uh, out of this iteration, though. I mean, um, because podcasting didn't really, the actual content didn't develop in this world far beyond... Uh, what Chris was doing until the Stanford one. By the time the Stanford one happened, that was November 2004, podcasting had gone through a whole nother burst of growth. And that happened in a, in a different way. We had the Chris Lydon example, but there wasn't a... You see, Chris, when people heard Chris's podcast, Chris has this incredible, you know, he's NPR, right? So you listen to NPR, and it doesn't give you the idea, hey, I could do that. You don't get that feeling listening to Chris. Because, I mean, there are pluses and minuses. That's not one of the pluses. So it didn't create sort of this, you know, this growth. And by the way, I should mention, in the meantime, there were other people doing podcasting. There was uh, Doug Kay and Steve Gilmore. And they deserve a shout-out. They were doing, um, they were doing, actually, the... Uh, um, the, the dialogue thing. So yeah. Doug Kay had, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of his, his show was, um, IT, conversations. IT Conversations, right? So there it was, Conversation. Right. And Gilmore had the Gilmore Gang. But you had and, a dream of, of speaking and being the antichrist in a way of just speaking off the cuff in your well, car. Well, yeah, well, the first one that I did, well, you see, I, I had a, also, Bob Doyle set him up in a certain way and I have to say, I didn't approve of the way Bob did it. But I stepped back and I said, let it happen. Because Bob Doyle is a wonderful guy, but you don't want to argue with Bob. <laughs> Bob really digs in. And, you know, and I said, look, if we get the show out of this, that's great. I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. But the thing that wasn't happening there that I wanted to see was I wanted very low-cost equipment. I didn't want anything more than this. There were, by the way, at this point, there were no iPhones. This was, you know, iPhone didn't come until 2007. So, you know, the, the, the high end of the, the uh, you know, of the you know, smartphone was basically a BlackBerry. And I don't... iRivers. Was that, was that later, iRivers? A lot of people were using I don't think any of them... We weren't thinking in terms of using that for recording. This is what we were using. And the laptops had microphones. They had the ability to record... But for the life of me, I couldn't find software that would just work. Well, then in the summer, in June of 2004, I found a piece of software called Polderbits that would allow me to record. And so what I did was I just said, look, I'm just going to talk into this thing. I'm not going to edit it. There's not going to be any production. There's not going to be any music. I'm just going to talk. And I made it an adjunct of my blog. And I had a popular blog, so people listened to it. And then... I went to the Democratic Convention, our little group there, the Berkman Thursday group. We pretty much all got passes to go to the DNC. And uh, I did interviews, and I walked around with my mind. And the technical quality was just 
awful. It was terrible. But my theory is that actually that was pretty good. Because when people listened to that, they had no doubt that they could do it. And almost anybody listening to this thing would realize, well, I could not only do that, I could do it better than he's doing it. And then I did um, a series of, of, uh, of podcasts as I drove across the United States. So those were just like narratives while I'm driving things that are occurring to me. It was almost like people talking to a, a voice recorder, like, you know, like I send out these you know, v, uh, MP3s just with ideas for people. Um, and that was really popular. And then five, 10, 20 more people are doing it. And, the, and, and there's a community, and we have a mail list called the iPodder mail list. And, um, and it's, it's, it's also rock, raucous, but it hasn't flamed out yet. The mail lists always flame out after a certain point in time. This is the, 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 the fun period. And, uh, did it frustrate you? Can I interrupt you there on the fun period? Wait, let him ask. Let, let, well, just, did it frustrate you that there wasn't that you were speaking, not quite into a void, but into a dumb audience? No, because it wasn't. At that point, I was getting interaction yeah. because I was talking to the people who read my blog and I had good ways to interact with them. And then there were the people on the mail list. It was a very tight-knit little community. So I actually was getting... It. I later did a podcast with Jay Rosen um, called Rebooting the News. And on that one, I wasn't getting any feedback. And that really sort of upset me. But, uh, but it was... But, uh, but in that time frame, I was getting feedback, and uh, and now my friend Adam Curry comes back into the picture. He started the Daily Source Code in August of 2004, and we don't need no stinking transmitters, right? <laughs> and uh, and I, as they say, you know, the rest is history. In September of 2004, um, I remember saying to Adam, we had we did a podcast called Trade Secrets. And I remember saying to him, look, we really need to come up with a name for this thing, you know, because we can't just keep making these things without having a name for it. The next day, Danny Gregoire on our mail list says, why don't we just call them podcasts? We go, well, that's good. Let's use it. <laughs> and that's how they became, came to be called podcasts. It was like, I didn't name blogging either, by the way. You know, so it's like the naming came a little bit later. And in two, you know, by the end of 2004, it's like, they're just coming online, and at that point, I felt like I can kick back. You know, I had ambitions. I wanted to do the. I wanted to do a product here. I wanted to do a podcast player. That was the thing I wanted to do, and I was going to go into business with Curry, but that didn't happen. And so, I just said, "Okay, fine, let it happen," and uh, and it happened very nicely. I don't know. So yeah. I, in a way, I feel like the podcast world is almost like a product of mine. Yeah. In a way that, you know, it's like, people have a hard time understanding that. I just say that, is that why would somebody create something like this without trying to make a billion dollars out of it? And that was never my goal. I mean, um, I feel very gratified that, you know, I have uh, Chris's podcast, which, by the way, is phenomenal. If you're not listening to Radio Open Source, you got to listen to it. It's like the best thing out there for politics. Um, I love the Daily podcast from the New York Times. Uh, uh, it's just it's a rich world, and it's you know yeah. it's a it's it's a great reward. So, yeah. Chris, your excitement about the podcast did it from those early days in Berkman was that? Was well, I started doing that project, interviewing the new the bloggers, and it was a lesson to me. I didn't know it at the time, but I mean, 
with a lot of encouragement from Dave and pointers, um, I just thought, I want to go and talk to all the bloggers I can talk to. What are they doing? What do they think they're doing? How do they come that way? Um, and it's now a very interesting collection of a moment in time yeah. when innovative people were taking this opportunity um, and became sort of the first little treasury. And of course, it was in, they were interested in each other, and that gave me a bit of a foothold in that community. I just wanted to make a couple of other glancing points, though, and we want to get on to the future. But in terms of, for me, it was, um, and not to dwell on, on me too much, but uh, it was a, such an interesting new world I was in. I had covered basically uh, straight politics for the, for the very straight New York Times. It was good work, but it was, it was in a certain box. Uh, but that world had sort of fallen apart for me, especially after we got fired from BUR. But I was meeting different kinds of people, and um, it was incredibly refreshing. Dave is maybe uh, a, a, a prototype, but of people who much more of the what we think of as the typical Silicon Valley or experimenters, the independent people, scrambling, uh, scared, desperate, but talented and whatnot. And I, I include Doc in that group and Ben Walker, people like, it, there's nobody like Ben Walker, but um, that ilk and, and raise Mary. Raise your hand, Ben, so everybody knows who you are. Come on, raise it higher. Mary McGrath, uh, an incredibly, uh, amazingly uh, generous partner in everything we've done together for almost 25 years now. Um, but it was a different world. At the same time, slightly paradoxically, it was an incredibly traditional idea here. And I, I had this sort of growing crush. Dave gets tired of it. Dave can leave the room when I mention Ralph Waldo Emerson. A lot of people do. But uh, <laughs> Emerson had this idea in the 1830s. I mean, he really, truly did. He, he was, um, and I had stumbled backward into Emerson. Never, I could never figure out what the hell his main idea was. Well, there was no main idea, but he was endlessly democratic and open and enthusiastic. He was the one who said, invent a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. He actually wrote that, and here was a better mousetrap, but it was also profoundly Emersonian. I mean, Emerson said, uh, first of all, we're one species, it's, and there's one carburetor called the brain, and it unites everybody, and we all have, except a few exceptions, a, a gift of reason, which is connectable, and cultures are interactive. He was a student, not only of the British poets, but of Indian, and uh, Persian language and literature. He, he was an omnivore um, and an enthusiast, but he also said things like, trust thyself. N nowadays, we say trust thyself, right? But trust thyself. <laughs> Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Trust thyself. It's in you. And Dave is a kind of embodiment of it. But also things like, follow the gleam in your own mind from within. Pursue it, believe in it, and get it down with your name on it before somebody else, you read it in somebody else's name. I mean, it's, and he, he literally says these things. Yeah. Sort of, it, it's, he's into self, but he's not either selfish or self-obsessed, but he's this unbelievable fount of a democratic, universalist, transcendental, but uh, generous idea. So I, I, I kept... I think there's a beautiful idea in here in terms of how this relates between the tech world and the journalism world. Absolutely. Because the, my, what I've, my frustration with the journalism world is that 
the people in it are extremely risk averse. Amen. They want to know. I was just discovering that. You know, I I just went to a journalism conference, first one in quite a few years, and the thing that I noticed is that they always, they never want to take a step back. In other words, every, if we're going to have a plan going forward, we have to start exactly where we are right now, and we have to know exactly where we're going. So I call that linear thinking. It's you have to know who will print it, too, well, and who's going to edit it. What's our business model? How are we going to get paid? Yada, yada, yada. The problem with that is that only works in a stable, static situation that isn't very dynamic. Okay? In the journalism world, since the advent of the web in the early 90s, has not been a static world. And so you need to have, right now, in order for us to get to the future, whatever that is, you have to be willing to step out of the plane with no parachute and have no idea about how this is going to land. You just have to take a first step. And that first step, you have to feel intuitively that 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 is going to at least yield enough information so that you know what the next step is, or the one after that, or something to try. And this is a very foreign idea in the journalism world. It's a very natural idea in the tech world. This is sort of the basic premise of Silicon Valley, which is, okay, you're going to try this. It might not work. And this is one of my frustrations. Silicon Valley didn't always understand this. And so, you know, you sort of had to spell out your business plan and tell them, you know, what are your numbers going to be, you know, every quarter out for the next 20 years. You know, that, well, that's nonsense. Nobody knows. At least now Silicon Valley has incorporated the idea that you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail. And then eventually you'll figure it out and you'll get to some place, you know, or maybe you won't. And we'll have 20 bets and you'll be the one. You won't be the one or you will be the one. But the original but, difficulty for podcasts was making a living keeping body and soul together while trying things, failing. I think that's a little bit unreasonable to expect podcasting to do that for you. Um, And I think that that when we finally do figure this thing out, it's going to be vastly different from what we think it's going to be. And um, Crowdfunding helps. Can I just respond to a couple of things you're saying? Because I think it's it's deep, uh, deeper than we can get in a phrase. But um, for me, the Emerson enthusiasm and the idea that, I mean, Emerson would say, don't, don't quote me things. Tell me what you're thinking. Uh, that's not journalism. Um, but in so many ways, I was finding journalism was really embarrassingly irrelevant to the world of George W. Bush and the Iraq war and what people were going through. I mean, it was, they just plain didn't get it. And frankly, they've not gotten it well, yet. Well, if you look at I the mean, head- headlines th- today, though, you, you come to exactly the same conclusion. I took a screenshot today of a, a news site that I read, Memorandum, which is you know just a snapshot of the news. And if you look at it, say, okay, is any of this stuff actually news? No, it's celebrity gossip. It's like you know, the thing that triggered me that made me want to, to look at it this way was they were saying, well, if if Trump fires Bannon, will he seek revenge? Well, who the hell cares? Yeah, right. Right. Why is that news? Right. I mean, this is like. Right? I mean, it's all this if stuff. But it's New, all journalism like that. is always telling you things that might happen. They never tell you what did happen yesterday uh, in detail. Um, Listen, but in any event, I, why don't we talk about what would we do? Here's a question for you, okay? What would we do? Let's say we're, we're, we take the same attitude that we took in 2003 and we start with radio open source, all right? You already have something that's working. Presumably, you have a business model. Is that right? 
Sort of. sort of. Okay. That's a great answer, by the way. What, well, the sort of, I mean, if you said, well, yes, we have a business model and. We have a uh, handout. That's, that's a business model. <laughs> okay. But you see, that's beautiful because if you said we're satisfied, then I, you know, we don't need any help or whatever, then I don't know that there's that much we could do. But the thing that I see in what you're doing, and we talked about this, and I wrote a blog post about this this morning. Um, is that you have a brain trust, and that brain trust is not being utilized, right? So at the peak of, if you look at radio open source, the top of the pyramid is Chris and Mary. Mary is the producer of Chris's podcast. Mary, you want to just raise your hands? So everybody knows. So it's like it's like everything else. This is the guy in front. That's the producer, and Mary doesn't get enough credit. And okay, just make sure everybody understands that there's a partnership here. And then there are other people back home, you know. Uh, and okay, so that's I think of that as the top of the pyramid, the peak of it. Why is that? Why are they? Where's the value in Chris and Mary? It's the Rolodex, and it's the experience. It's all the reading that they've done, all the listening that you guys have done. You know, all the memories of, okay, this guy's a good person to call when this happens. And so some event has happened in the world, you know who to call, that's your value, right? And you know what to ask. And that, you know, you have other value, but in the context of your podcast, that's where it is. Second level down are the people in your Rolodex. And they, and I asked a question the other day when we talked, do these people actually listen to your podcast? And I would want to know which ones of those people did because I would push them up a little bit more because they might have ideas how all this stuff combines better. And then the next level down, and I think that in terms of quantity, size, and power in your brain trust are the people who have figured out that this is a good podcast to listen to. In your case, they had to work really hard to figure it out because even the smartest people in the world, most of them don't know that your podcast exists. So the ones that actually listen to it and are inquisitive enough to have found it, these are incredible people. You know, if let's say your podcast becomes, you know, the size of, I don't know, with fresh air or whatever, something really in, huge, it's the people that you have right now are going to be the core. They're going to really be incredible people. You're going to want to remember those people. So what can we do with that? I mean, this is a tremendous intellectual value here, you know, and that I think is is somehow central to the future of your podcast, but not just theirs. I'm telling the story because there are other podcasters here in the room, and I, I think you should all be thinking about it this way too, is what kind of product can you create and I, I don't mean product in a crass way. I mean product in a, in a, in a, in a powerful way. It's like, but I'm using their podcast as an example because I'm familiar with it. So what I would say is that some event happens in the world and you use your Rolodex and you get some input from these people and you present that to the world and you do that often enough and then people get the idea that they need to come to you when some event happens. Mm -hmm. and right now, a lot of these people, they're going to CNN, they're going to MSNBC, and they're getting garbage. Yeah. I mean, that's the way I feel about it. I mean, did you watch Brian Williams the other night with you know his love affair with those bombs going off? No. That, it's like makes you want to puke. Mm. This is like 
I'm sorry, maybe some people like Brian Williams. I just, I apologize if you do. I hate Brian Williams, mm. but with a passion. Uh, right, so I, that's I, my story. I just want to say, um, I, want to, I want to kick it back to you very promptly, but the point was only that um, uh, we, we've been in the, we're in the process of redesigning our, our website to do precisely that, uh, and we were, we were encouraged by you, but we, 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 we want to make great. it a more instant reactive uh, site in itself where people, and it will spread, I think, word of mouth, uh, can go for, you know, what, what would Chris's kinds of people, uh, the MIT strategists or Harvard or the wonderful Chaz Freeman at Brown and uh, various other places. But um, I wish you'd just tell people Give people your general theory that the, the, the strange thing about podcasting is that it has not been captured yet. In some way, there's, oh, something, yeah. there's something genuinely free there that is waiting to wanna, be You want to talk about that? Because be we've, we've talked about that briefly. I it mean, just strikes me that it's, it's more and more, in my mind, like reading. You know, I feel like it's akin to a reading experience as opposed to switching on the radio and having it going in the background. Right. There's kind of a level of engagement, and there's also a stimulus of the imagination that is very reminiscent of reading, and it's almost like a move on the reading space. Yeah, uh, that's true, but it's a different category, uh, Finn. I just wonder if Dave would make the point about tech the technology. Uh, right. And the technologists yeah. have not captured this. Is the space this is yet. an important point? Yeah, that um, that, and I don't know how many people really realize this, but. Uh, you know, that Twitter and Facebook, between the two of them, and Google Reader, which is now gone, but even as a ghost, it, its presence is felt, um, have basically decimated the blogosphere and chopped it up into different, into bits and made it a real problem. I mean, you can, I still blog. I mean, I don't even like the word still. I mean, I'm, a, I'm what I call a natural born blogger which means I cannot not blog. I mean, basically, you know, if there weren't blogs, I would find a way to blog anyway because I get ideas and they need to get out of me and I need to get them out there. Even if nobody else reads them, I need to get them out there somewhere. So, but like, for example, this morning, I, I wrote this post and I felt it was, had some value. I knew nobody would read it. Uh, that are my followers on Facebook unless I take the full text of it and post the full text on Facebook. And that like destroys all the value in it and it's it completely, it sucks because Facebook won't let me put links in there and I use links as part of my literature. It's how I write. I use links. So there's that. That, you know, they've basically chopped up blogging into incompatible bits, you know. But they haven't done it with podcasting. But they've done it also, they've taken the money out of it too. Well, okay, I've never, no, no. yeah, I know. I mean, this is my own trip, but I never looked at blogging as a money-making thing. You know, I'm sorry, I know that other people do, but it's never been my thing. And you, so, you, and, you and Jimmy Wales, praise God for you. I mean, he didn't, he didn't do Wikipedia for the money either. And no. it's the biggest success out there. I know, Why? Well, you know, boy, I look at it, um, I made a lot of money in the first part of my career. That was I was very directed towards making money in the 80s. And I did. Okay. I could have wanted to make, a lot of people would say, well, of course you want to make more money. And the answer was I didn't. I never at that point having made enough money to live on, I don't need more money. 
So if I'm going to decide what direction to go in, it isn't going to be. Speak about this free space that's still there to be right. to be to be held and used okay. for good purposes. Well, um, how to pick that up? I mean, look, there are div what, what the value of it is is that let's say you wanted a feature in your Facebook posts. Okay. In other words, you let's say you were, I'm, I, first. Let me give you a negative example. Okay, so you're writing stuff on Facebook, and you say, "My God, I really wish there were a feature there that would let me do X, Y, and Z." Who can you ask to do that feature? You could ask me, and I would say, "I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you because I don't have the source code to Facebook, and even if I did, they wouldn't let me check my changes into their system. I can't add a feature to Facebook." I'm sorry. And if you want a feature from Facebook, you have to call up Facebook and they're going to say no. Even the best idea for a feature, they will just say no. This is the way it works. There's, you know, this has just been, that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why, and I could go into all of them, but, and I know that the journalism industry right now is obsessed with the idea of getting Facebook to work with them. And Facebook's paying lip service to that. But it's never going to happen, you know. And we can check back in on that in five or ten years. And if it actually happened, I'll be happy for them. But I'm absolutely sure it will never happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, if you said to me, Dave, I really wish there was a feature in podcasting that we could have, I'd say, well, we could certainly talk about that. And if I understand what you're looking for, what you want to see happen, I can do it. And the reason for that is that no tech company has captured podcasting. It's not that they haven't tried, they have. You know, Apple is a fantastic example. Apple came in to podcasting in, I'm going to say 2005, something like that. And, you know, they made all this, you know, they thought, oh, well, it's called podcasting. I guess that must belong to us. And, um, and they tried. Through, through iTunes, you mean? Yeah. And... And it's not to say that iTunes isn't a very important distribution point for podcasting, but you know how can you tell that that iTunes doesn't dominate? Listen to the you know how to subscribe instructions at the end of every podcast, and uh, it's actually kind of embarrassing what people have to say. I mean, what do they say? You know, you might want to get it on iTunes. You might want to get it on Stitcher. You could get it from your favorite. Uh, podcast listening service, blah, 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 blah. You're supposed to figure out yourself how to subscribe to this thing. And, but I, I, and that's both, let me just say this, that's both an embarrassment that we haven't got something better than that, that we don't have a better answer, but it's also good news because it means that no silo has captured podcasting yet. And I don't know if they ever will, but I know that there are people who would like to capture it. But how would people in this room ambitious podcasters, including Mary and me, uh, take advantage of that. What, 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 is the, uh, what is the open gate then there we that we haven't even noticed? The, well, the first thing, no, you have to find developers who would like to work with you and then talk with us. That's the gateway. We used to call this, in the early days of podcasting, we used to call it users and developers party together. That was our slogan. That was what this was all about. Is we're going to hang out, we're going to do cool stuff, and we're just going to have fun. And, but the key point there was users and developers. And we're still in that phase, we could still do that. You have to say, we want to do this, or I could come to you and say, look, I see there's a potential here that we could do this, 
but you have to work with me on this if we're going to do this. And you also kind of have to trust me to not, to, when I say that I'm not out to control you or own you, well, you have to look me in the eye and decide whether or not I'm lying. Because <laughs> tech people will say that to you and they will often be lying about that. So you have to form a judgment you know, as to whether or not I really want to control you. I don't want to control you. Can I ask um, you, can I ask you a, a sort of a hypothetical? Yeah, I mean, I'm something I, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, first of all, just a quick parenthesis on, on voice. I mean, the reason we're in radio is that uh, we are actually devout believers in the power of the human voice. And it's quite unlike the power of prose um, itself or the mm -hmm. written word. Um, Studs Terkel called it vox humana, that magnificent instrument. But uh, lots of other people, the wonderful, the late, great Tony Schwartz, the ad man, uh, he, he, he believed uh, at a scientific level too, and almost at an evolutionary level, that we get the critical messages of our lives through our ears. Much in a visual culture, it's a sort of exceptional view. Uh, but Tony was a practiced it in all kinds of brilliant commercials. Um, and anyway, we, we love the sound of the human voice. That was, for me, something that I never understood in television, what was missing. But to hear individual voices um, calling in, but also, I mean, I think of I mean, Mary, you would have your own list. But I mean, I, Colm Tobin, the Irish writer, uh, one, one, of, one of yours, one of ours, been, uh, reading a poem by um, Elizabeth Bishop. It's just one of the most beautiful things that the, you can absorb. Uh, I think of Harold Evans's voice, um, lots of people's voices, accented voices, feeble voices, stuttering voices, warm voices, cold voices. So much is conveyed, uh, so many signals are given that don't get out there any other way. I mean, that's, for me, uh, it's sort of one of my big midlife discoveries. But anyway, coming back to where we were, I, I think w w what we've never figured out is how you can get feedback on a, on a blog post. How you can get... You mean on a podcast? I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, on a podcast. No, it's, it's, so that, you know, on talk radio, we, we had amazing callers. That, that was really what made our show in so many ways. Um, and yeah. uh, one distinctive caller, still a close, close friend of ours, an, a Barbadian orphan girl who who knew everything and still knows everything. But anyway, she became famous. I know the answer, how you're going to get the feedback, okay. how you're yeah. going to get uh, the interaction. To develop, to develop a, I think I a podcast that had, as Facebook does, comments by name or by category or by region of the world or whatnot would be one, one way I'd love to experiment. Right. Um, okay. Well, I had the same, I mentioned this before, I had the same problem, same frustration uh, when I did the podcast with Jay, uh, the uh, rebooting the news, um, that it, it felt like I was adrift. I didn't know how it was being received. I found out much later that, in fact, it, a lot of people were listening to it and it was very influential. Um, but I had no, I wasn't getting anything back. And, and one of the, it's one of the reasons you do this stuff. It's not just to hear yourself talk, but it's to get the value back from it. I think the way you're going to get that is f through, uh, through uh, the moment when a breaking news story is happening and, um, and people 
if you can get people to turn to you when that's happening, that's when you're going to get them to participate in what you're doing. It won't be on the individual podcast show, although they, they may end up citing back to you the things that they, that they heard from you. The, the problem is uh, that when we listen to your podcast, uh, I'm out walking in the park when I'm listening to you. I'm not in any position to give you feedback because, you know, first of all, I'm, I give you an hour of my time when I'm listening to it. And so, um, and I'm in your zone when I'm listening and I'm not talking. I might laugh at a joke. I mean, um, you know, I might, you know, be, be you know, I might be stirred by something that someone says, but I'm, it's not necessary because I'm far away from any interactive forum. I'm not going, right. it's, it, I don't see a way to, 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 uh, to overcome that obstacle. It's I think it's enjoyable to be a listener. Right. It's and it's not bad. To, to not feel the pressure <laughs> to deliver a perfectly formed mirroring. Absolutely. Response. It's incredibly relaxing to not have to say anything, right? <laughs> I mean it's it, it, sometimes there are personal relationships that are like that too, where right. you know the other person's gonna carry all the weight and all you have to do is just listen and smile and yes. you know, everything's good, you know. I've, you know, it's it for somebody who likes to talk. I tend to be the person talking. Yeah. It is from time to time nice not to talk, and that's the podcast experience. But I think I really encourage you, especially given the nature of the podcast that you have, um, to find ways, moments to engage with your brain trust. That's why I don't like the word audience. I think we ought to think in terms in different terms now. We ought to think ab about the value that these people have, that they're not, I used to, we, we used to write about Doc and I, I used to call it undifferentiated slurry. That <laughs> this is not who we are. If you know, my, my community on scripting news are like the most incredible developers in the world. If I, I think of them as a brain trust, if I have a question, if I ask the question in a way that's stimulating, they're all going to show off. They're all going to tell me. So you have to figure that out. You have to crack that nut. How can you raise questions at a moment for them? And I'll work with you on this. I would like to work with you on this. Mm -hmm. I'd like to turn the clock back to 2003 and get involved in what you're doing again. And let's see if we can't take what you're doing to the next level. I almost feel embarrassed that I haven't done that for you mm -hmm. because we helped to get you going. And, and, and this is a kind of, OK, we just sort of said, OK, you do it now. That's not an acceptable answer, right? So I think that there's stuff to do here. I have one other thing is that, that I said it goes both ways, is that you can say to a developer, this is something I'd like you to do, I'd like to do with you, but you could also listen to the developer and the developer might say, here's something I can do, would you like to do this with me? And, um, and so here's, here's a pitch, right? I have observed that when I want to listen to something good, the last thing I'm thinking about is subscribing to a podcast. Subscribing to a podcast never is my number one objective. I never go, well, today, right now, I really need to subscribe to another podcast. That never happens. What happens is I want to listen to something good right now. And so when you ask the question that way, you, it suggests a different approach. It says, what I want is, I want a, oh, I just want that. <laughs> Give me something good to listen. So what we have to do is figure out how 
to do that. Hmm. And now this is where I don't want to say I actually have an answer. I have a service that actually does that. I do have a service that does that. But I want to stop short of that because this is at the moment where I have to say, trust me. And this is where we fall apart. When users and developers don't party together, it's when people look at the developer and say, well, I don't trust this guy. And the frustration from a developer who is an honorable person, which, well, you know, I would say that I am, is that you guys, and I don't mean anybody in this room, I mean the general you guys, tend to trust the least trustworthy developers there are. Hmm. You know, um, when people say, I want to get a deal with Facebook, well, what they're really saying is I want somebody to solve all my problems, and I want to be made rich, and I want to go back to being not an adventurer, but I want to be taken care of. Uh, can I go back a step before we go forward? Yeah, I'm done. That's we, all I have to say. Talking the other day, we were, we were speaking of something we talked about 15 years ago, which was simply, it's a problem of journalism, but uh, the New York Times at that point uh, was just frustrating me so, um, but I, I remember having the notion in my head that the, with, the, with the electronic, the digital media coming on online, what the New York Times has got to realize that it has uh, maybe a thousand journalists on call, editors, writers, correspondents, one sort or another. Um, but what re the real value of that company and that name is a million, or maybe two, oh God. Uh, uh, readers. Huge. They've got the most influential, interesting, well-placed, uh, powerful audience in the world. And the trick would be um, to turn that around, call on their readers, to be their writers. I mean, uh, the, the very opposite was Walter Cronkite, bless his soul, saying, well, that's the way it is. Uh, I'm Walter Cronkite, you're not, good night. Um, the, the absurdity of the idea that all that wisdom was coming from him as opposed to, and you could imagine all millions of people around the world saying, Walter, wrong, you should be in Topeka, that's not the way it is, or you should be in Timbuktu, or whatever. But if you could Did you get really feel that way when he said that? Because I felt the opposite. I felt oh, like I lo no, I he love really that does know, Walter really did know the way. Uh, that, well, that he sort of did. No, I, was, I, I, this is not a knock on Craig at all. But the idea that the wisdom is The world was simpler then, though. I mean, you really, you right. really kind of could believe, or maybe we, you know, go ahead. I, no, I made my point. <laughs> If, if the Times could only turn the telescope right. around oh, yeah. and let people who are in the cabinet... Had they done that, there would be no Facebook. That's true. That, and but, that's, uh, what, that's what Facebook bought. That's what Facebook was willing to do that the journalism world was not. Facebook was willing to have a level playing field. They were, journalism doesn't have any advantage over Dan Rather. This is a good case in point. Dan Rather doesn't work for anybody. But when Dan Rather writes a post on Facebook, he gets as much flow as the New York Times does on Facebook, mm -hmm. because people care what Dan Rather has to say. And uh, so, but how would we do that with our brain trust, with our audience, our people who, who like? Uh, I told you. I told you. Start with the breaking news thing, or give them blogs. Okay, you want to really go radical? Start right now. But I don't recommend this because you guys have busy lives. How would you okay. give them audio blogs? How would you give them audio blogs? Well, I wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be my recommendation because all of a sudden you have 
Maybe you should do it. I mean, that's what I would say to the New York Times. That is what I said to the New York Times, by the way. I had a meeting with them, with the head of the New York Times Digital in 2002, where I said exactly that. I said two things. I want your feeds, and I want you to give a blog to everybody who has, your reporters have quoted. So if you quote somebody, you should give them a free blog. They did give me their feeds, but they didn't give me that. But that, uh, it would be a really big job for you to do this at this point because are you really going to read all, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how many you would actually get though. See at that point it kind of, giving people blogs in 2002 was a way, or was a big difference from giving people blogs today. Right. In 2002 there was a real shortage of hosting services. You know, it would have been a real gift to the whole blogging world to have an organization of the you know, of the power and stability of the New York Times offering blogging hosting. Today, it's it's not a challenge. Anybody can host a blog. On Twitter is a blog. You know, micro and, and Facebook certainly is, and WordPress will give you a blog for free, Tumblr will, any number of different sites. If you want to set up a hosting service, you know, you can do it in an afternoon. It's not a big deal. So I don't know that your audience would even understand the offer that you're making at this point. You know, have a blog on radio open source. Why? That would be, if I, I mean, I am in your community, and so you would presumably make that offer, and I would go, no, I have a blog, I don't need it. Or more likely what they would say is, I have a blog and I don't update it, so what do I need another one for? That's, I, I, you have to catch them at the moment when they feel that being involved in what you do is urgent. That there is a sense of urgency. They have something to say right now and they have to be heard.